Well, let's take our Bibles and turn back to Romans chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I want to say thank you for those of you who prayed and uh, your sentiments this morning that I got back in one piece from our father-son ski trip last weekend and uh, without an arm in the sling, a sling or a, a cast on my leg, uh, <laughs> um, I was uh, just very grateful to be able to spend that time with Jacob and I said to Jacob on the way back, I said, hey buddy, what was the highlight for you? And he said, snowboarding. And I said, you know what the highlight for me was, buddy? Watching you snowboard. Because basically how it goes is we get off the lift, you know, and uh, he gets buckled in and he takes off and I just take off after him and try to keep up with him. And, uh, you know, skiing is a great illustration of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God is in control the whole time. But you have to stay under control as well. And uh, as soon as you get out of control, that's when bad things happen. And uh, thankfully, only a few bad things happen, and they weren't that serious. So, um, But anyway, we had a great time. appreciate you guys encouraging us to get away and do that and to make some memories uh, as a family. So uh, anyway, uh, Romans chapter 2, uh, we are have been looking at verses 1 through 16. Uh, what I thought was only going to be a, a message or two has turned into part 4. But uh, we're going to begin where we left off last time, two weeks ago, in verse 11. And so I just want to read verses 11 through 16 just to remind you of what Paul said here, and then we'll try to review a bit and pull it all together and hopefully be able to finish this section uh, this morning. Romans chapter 2, verse 11, for there is no partiality with God, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. God, we come to you this morning in the name of Christ through Jesus, and we ask that you would give us insight into these words, that we would understand what you meant by what Paul wrote here and uh, how they apply to our lives, Lord, that we would not just be merely hearers of the word this morning who delude ourselves, but that we would be doers of the word, that we would listen, Lord, not just to gain more knowledge, but to become more pleasing to you, which we know ultimately looks like Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. Well, as you know, our culture is obsessed with courtrooms and trials. Some of the most popular shows on television today are courtroom shows or legal dramas like Perry Mason, that's for the older crowd, right? L.A. Law, The Practice, Law and Order, Boston Legal, Chicago Justice, and then you've got a litany of judges doing their thing on reality TV, right? Judge Judy and 
Judge Joe Brown and Judge Wapner and the People's Court and Court TV and it seems like every other channel you've got something uh, in that genre. And then over the past few decades, there have been some famous trials that, that have captivated the attention of the entire nation, from Charles Manson to Oliver North to O.J. Simpson to uh, Rodney King to the Menendez brothers, Timothy McVeigh, Oscar Pistorius, Casey Anthony, and most recently, Larry Nassar. It seems that people care deeply about who is guilty and who is innocent, who is convicted and who is acquitted. And I think in all of our hearts, we truly want justice to be served, don't we? And yet we all know that the American justice system is deeply flawed. And unfortunately, even the best judges and the best courts don't always get it right. Innocent people are sent to prison. Guilty people get off scot-free because of a lack of evidence or some legal loophole. Judges and juries tend to show partiality in certain cases depending on the nature of the crime or who committed it or who, who was affected by it. But unlike our imperfect justice system that was developed and is applied by imperfect humans, God's justice system is perfect. He rules in perfect righteousness, so justice is always served and will always be served. How can that be? How is that possible? Well, very simply, he knows everything, and he sees everything. And so it's impossible for anyone to get away with something they did or to be wrongly convicted for something they didn't do. And so God's legal process never breaks down, it never fails, and he is absolutely and always impartial when he judges. And so none of us will escape God's judgment. One way or the other, we will stand before him someday. And as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, it's important for us to understand that there's not just one big judgment day. That's typically how we think about it, how it's referred to, uh, where everyone, all at the same time, uh, is judged. No, the, the judgment will be different than that. Both believers and unbelievers will face God's judgment. That's true, but they will be judged separately at two different times and in two different ways. Believers will stand before uh, the Lord at what is referred to as the, what? The Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, and unbelievers will stand before the Lord as what is known as what? the great white throne, judgment. At the Bema seat, uh, every believer will be examined by Christ himself and he'll reward us based on how faithfully we obeyed him and how sacrificially we served him. Believers won't be punished for their sins, which have been fully paid for already by Christ's sinless life and substitutionary death. Uh, we will simply be praised for our works. However, at the great white throne, unbelievers will be examined by Christ and he will condemn them to hell for not repenting of their sin and for rejecting him as their Lord and Savior. And at that time, all unbelievers from all times will be cast into hell to be punished for or to pay for their own sins for all eternity. And so when it comes to God's judgment, again, it's important to 
to not confuse the Bema seat and the great white throne. And here in Romans chapter 2, Paul was addressing the judgment of God in general, uh, specifically how a righteous God will judge both the unrighteous and the self-righteous. Um, and in chapter 2, we, you, you may remember this, but we said that Paul made a transition here from the unrighteous in chapter 1 to the self-righteous. And Paul was anticipating, uh, as he did so well, uh, how people would respond to what he was writing. As this letter was read, he anticipated that he, at, after hearing the last part of uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, this, this scathing rebuke of the pagan world, um, some of his readers would probably feel very good about themselves since they didn't practice any of those things listed there, um, nor did they approve of those types of sinful behavior. And again, I think this hits home for all of us because here we are sitting in church and it's very easy for us to have a critical, condescending, judgmental attitude um, towards those who aren't at church, who don't come to church, and to look down our self-righteous noses if you will, at all the wicked and immoral people in this world who really deserve to be judged by God. And that's how the Jews felt about the Gentiles in Paul's day. Uh, in fact, all throughout Bible times, they considered themselves more righteous than the rest of the Gentile world. And the classic example is the Pharisee and the tax collector, that parable that Jesus told where the Pharisee was praying before the Lord God, thank you that I'm not like this guy. I do this and this and this, and he listed off all the good things he did and, uh, and, and, and uh, kind of threw this other guy under the bus. And the Jews wrongly assumed that because of their natural, uh, or national and religious heritage that they would escape God's judgment. And so Paul wanted to fix that wrong thinking, and he wanted them to know that just because they were God's chosen people didn't mean they wouldn't face the wrath of God. In fact, they were in the same boat as the pagans that he described in chapter 1, and so are all of us, by the way. We, we are all um, in the same boat. We are all under God's wrath and can be only delivered by God's righteousness in Christ. And so before Paul presented how we can be delivered from our sin through the righteousness that he provides us in Christ, he wanted to make sure that all of us understood that God was just to judge all of us because of our sin. And so here in verses 1 through 16, Paul was explaining, uh, we could say, four standards by which God will impartially judge every person. And we've looked at the first two points already. Number one, God's judgment is based on knowledge. This is verses 1 through 5, where we, we, we learn that the fact that we judge others for their sin demonstrates that we know what sin is, and, and yet we do the same things. And now our sin might not be as despicable or as noticeable as others, but nevertheless, it will not escape God's judgment. And uh, we shouldn't think lightly or take advantage of the fact that God in His kindness has mercifully not given us what we deserve for our sin, uh, but He's given us time to repent of our sin. And, uh, and, and yet sometimes when God doesn't punish us right away, we become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We think we have more time to continue in our sin uh, and, and we get away with it for a while. And, and instead of getting away with it, actually what's happening, we're accumulating more wrath for ourselves in the future because of our unresponsive, unrepentant 
heart. And that's what he said essentially in verses 1 through 5. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So God's judgment, first of all, is based on knowledge. Number two, God's judgment is based on deeds. And this is verses 6 through 11. This is what we looked at last time. Who will render to each person according to his deeds? To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Again, this passage could potentially cause some confusion in our minds if we don't keep in mind that Paul was not explaining how a person is justified that's coming in chapter 3, he's simply explaining how a person is judged. And so before he clarified that we're justified apart from our works, he made it clear here that we are judged according to our works. Works are not the ground of salvation, but they are the evidence of salvation. And so all men will be judged on the same grounds, if you will, they'll be judged by their works, which provide visible, visible proof whether or not we're genuine believers. Anyone can say they're a believer, but the only way that that profession of faith can be verified or validated or authenticated is by looking to see if their life is different than it was before they became a Christian. It's not enough for us to profess to know the truth. We need to practice the truth, and without the evidence of a changed life, we will be condemned by God as a faker. Um, there was a term I was trying to recall to mind, um, an unsaved believer. There's such a thing, you know. Faith without works is what? Dead. Even the demons believe, and yet they shudder. They're believers, if you will. They believe. They know who God is and who Jesus is better than we do. They're more orthodox than we are. They believe, but they're not saved. And so Paul was just simply making it clear here that there are really only two classes of people. And there's only two outcomes regarding God's judgment. You're either a believer or an unbeliever. And you'll either spend eternity in heaven or hell. And how God will determine who or what you are and where you deserve to spend eternity is by our deeds. In the end, it's all going to come down to how we lived our lives because that is the most accurate indicator of whether we're a believer or an unbeliever. What a person does is a reflection of what they are or who they are. And so he's basically explaining here where we spend eternity will be determined by our works, our actions, our ambitions, our aspirations, our passions, our pursuits, which reveal what's in our heart. 
But notice what he says here, and we didn't, I didn't mention this last time, but notice two times in verse 9 and 10, he says, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, and then verse 10, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Just as the Jews deserve to be the first ones to receive the good news of salvation, which he said, uh, what, back in verse 16, for I'm not ashamed, chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the who first? The Jew first and also to the Greek. He's repeating himself now. This is the third time he's made this comment. And so uh, he's simply saying that, listen, the Jews deserve to be the first ones to receive the good news of salvation, but they also deserve to be the first ones to receive God's judgment for rejecting it. And as God's chosen people, the, the Jews receive greater light. They receive greater blessing. We're going to see that in chapter 3. And so they have greater accountability and will receive greater punishment. Hold that thought. You're like, what are you talking about? There's, there's degrees of punishment? Well, it seems that Scripture implies that. Stay tuned for more later. Again, this would be shocking. What, what Paul was writing here would be shocking to the ears of the Jews back then who assumed that God's judgment only applied to the Gentiles, the pagans, the heathens. But Paul wanted them to know that being a Jew gave them no special advantage over the Gentiles, that they would be judged right alongside them. So he just, by saying this uh, of the Jew first and also the Greek, he just levels the playing field. He just puts everybody in the same category. Because the bottom line is, verse 11, there is no, what? Partiality with God. God doesn't play favorites. Literally, that phrase, no partiality, in the original language means to receive a face. In other words, to give special attention or consideration to someone because of their position, their wealth, their, their influence, their appearance, none of which will have anything to do on where we spend eternity. I'm sure you're familiar with the symbol of justice here in America and really throughout history is, is that statue, Lady Justice. You're familiar with her? She, she's that lady that stands up on the pedestal there and she's portrayed as a blindfolded woman carrying a sword and a set of scales which depicts the, the fair administration of the law without corruption, without greed, without prejudice or favor. And, and I think the blindfold is, is really the most significant thing of that whole description. That whole depiction there, and it simply depicts that she is unable to see who is being judged. She has no idea what they look like or where they come from or the color of their skin. And therefore, she's not tempted to be partial for or against the accused. And in the same way, since part of God's nature is that he is just, it is impossible for him to be anything but impartial. Listen to what the scripture says about this subject of impartiality. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Acts 10, 34, Peter having to come to grips with the fact that God intended to include the Gentiles alongside the Jews in the church 
And he said this, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Galatians 2.6, what they were makes no difference to me. Paul says, God shows no partiality. Ephesians 6.9, talking to masters, uh, right on the heels of, of talking to slaves, he says, masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. In other words, it's not like, oh, you're a slave. Oh, you're the master? No, there's no partiality. You're on the same playing field. You're in the same boat in God's eyes. doesn't matter if you're the CEO or the janitor in God's eyes. Colossians 3.25, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. And then one more, 1 Peter 1.17, if you address if you address as far the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves then in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And so it's very clear that God is impartial. There is no partiality with God. And so what Paul does now is he goes on to explain why God can and will judge Jews and Gentiles the same. Notice the four there in verse 12, for there is no partiality with God. That's why, by the way, Jews and Gentiles are in the same boat because there's no partiality with God. But why is that true? Well, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So the grounds for judgment is exactly the same, is what he's saying here. It's the holy law. God's holy law, which he wrote on two tablets for the Jews and wrote on the heart of every man. Again, remember, he began this section by warning self-righteous Jews, or we could just say moral people in general, not to consider themselves less likely to be judged than the wicked Gentiles. And so now he really burst their bubble of, of supposed privilege in a very shocking way. One commentator said it this way. He said, quote, he is about to tell them that a Gentile, a heathen barbarian who does not have the law, who has no personal relationship with God, who is ignorant of God's statutes, could be judged less harshly than a Jew. Why? Because God's judgment is based on truth. That's our third point here. God's judgment is based on truth. And Paul's point in this section is that we will be judged based on how well we lived up to the light we've received. And so just as there will be degrees of rewards for believers, there will be degrees of punishment for unbelievers. Now again, this may be a new concept to you. Thinking, what were you saying? There's like hotter places in hell than others? What are you talking about? Well, let's read a few scriptures together and you can draw your own conclusion. Matthew chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. This is when Jesus sent out the 12 disciples with instructions um, to go from city to city and share the good news of salvation. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, he says, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet 
Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So in other words, it, it appears that Sodom and Gomorrah are getting off easy compared to that city. He repeats the same thing in Matthew 11 when they return and are giving a report, an update of their time uh, out to doing evangelism in chapter 11, verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? Capernaum was the headquarters the place, the city, the town where Christ set up his headquarters on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And so they had more access to Christ than any other group of people. He says, you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Why? Because they had been exposed to far more truth. They had the, the, the truth of God. They had the Son of God there in their midst. Look at Luke 12. Luke 12, uh, verse 41. This is a familiar parable. Luke chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus would tell these parables about a, a landowner going away and a master leaving and, and giving and trusting his goods uh, his resources to stewards. Um, and so, verse 43, uh, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. In other words, um, uh, being faithful to his tasks. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions, but if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. So is that clear that he's talking about unbelievers here, right? This is unsaved people, and they're demonstrating that they're unsaved by the way they're living. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. For everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. And so it appears that unbelievers will be punished according to the amount of knowledge, the amount of light that they were given. And then one, one other passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. The writer here is referring to those who have known of Christ and yet rejected him. How much severe punishment, this is Hebrews 10, 29, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? In other words, a person that has heard the gospel and has multiple opportunities to, to, to receive the gospel will be punished far more severely than the one who 
never heard the gospel, um, never had that opportunity. And so I think it's safe to say that the hottest part of hell will be reserved for those who squandered the greatest spiritual opportunity. I mean, it's only right and just that those who enjoy greater privilege should experience greater punishment. Now let's go back to our text and see how Paul fleshes this out. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. It doesn't mean they, oh, God's going to let you off the hook. No, they're still without excuse. We, we know that based on uh, what he said um, back in verse 20 of chapter 1, that they all, we're all without excuse. So he says, for all who have sinned without the law, they will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So Gentiles, or those who have never had the opportunity to hear or know God's moral law, summarized, we can say summarized in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, will be judged on the basis of what they did with the limited knowledge they did have. And they'll be sentenced to hell alongside those who did receive the truth of God's law, but didn't do anything about it, i.e. the Jews in this context. Notice he says uh, they will be judged by the law. Those who have had access to God's law will be held even more accountable because of their greater knowledge. Now again, we're sitting here in a Bible church, a Biblehead church. We could have to be careful we don't become Lakeside Biblehead church. Because that's what Bible churches are typically known for. And, 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 and we strive to faithfully teach the truth of God's word. And, 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 and sometimes we think in our heads that makes us better than those who go to churches that aren't faithful to teach God's word. But you know what? It doesn't make us better. It just makes us more accountable. It makes us more responsible before God for all the biblical knowledge that we're exposed to. And, and so consequently, we shouldn't be walking around puffed up. We should walk around more humble than anybody else. Notice what he says in verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And again, you're like, What's going on there? That's, that's messing with my theology. What, Paul? The doers of the law will be justified? Well, that, that seems to contradict what I know you say, you know, later in this book or, you know, you've said in your other letters. Again, context is everything. And, and again, what is the immediate context? What has he just got done saying in verses 6 through 10, it's not what a person knows or says they believe that determines where they'll spend eternity. It's what they do with what they know. Paul is not saying that a person is justified by keeping the law because that would totally contradict what he said elsewhere in his letter. In fact, chapter 3 should, should clarify this for us in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. 
Rather, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is just there to show you what a sinner you are, that you can keep it. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of, what, what kind of, by what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So again, Romans is kind of like a puzzle and you get a piece over here and you're like, whoa, that doesn't seem to fit over here, but you got to get this piece over here and, and get them all together and they all fit. But don't just focus in on one piece of the puzzle and go, well, that must... That looks like a pig to me, when really it's a horse. You just got, you're just looking at one small portion of the picture. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans 2.13 is it is only by the deeds and works of one man. We know that, right? We know that. It's only, only by the deeds and works of one man that we can be justified. That's Christ's work in his sinless life, his substitutionary death. Paul was simply reiterating his previous point, that what truly reveals or shows or proves that a person has been justified or is genuinely saved is what they do or how they live. Turn over to James. James chapter 1, verse 21. This is going to sound very familiar to what Paul said. James chapter 1, verse 21 he says, therefore, put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility. Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But here it is. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And then he goes on to give a, a classic illustration of, of standing in front of a mirror. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. In other words, he looks in the mirror, sees all the things in his life that need to change, and he turns around and walks away. And not only doesn't do anything to change, he completely forgets about what he saw. But, he says, one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, this is the word of God, and abides by it, lives according to it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. In other words, we look at the word of God, we see what it says, we want to obey what it says, and it's not a law that takes away our freedom, in fact, it's a law that gives us freedom makes freedom possible. How about Matthew chapter 7? You remember this passage, I'm sure. This was the culmination, the crescendo of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 20. Matthew chapter 7, verse 20. So then you will know them by their fruits. How do you know if it's an apple tree? How do you know if it's an orange tree? Well, just look. What does it got? Does it got oranges? Does it got apples? And then he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven will enter. In other words, it's not about who calls themselves a Christian, who claims to be a Christian, but who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me on that, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, you're doing all these good things, but your lifestyle is lawless. It's, it's sinful. It's, 
It's habitually not in line with the scriptures. And then he gives this illustration that, again, we're all familiar with. Verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. It's not about just hearing, but it's doing, right? May be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house. And yet it did not fall for it had not been founded, for it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26, on the other hand, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, does not do them, does not live them out, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. I believe that's a picture of the judgment day. That one guy's house survives and the other gets destroyed. And the determining factor is, are they merely hearers of the word or are they doers of the word? Are they living out what they claim to believe? The whole point is this, hearing the truth and knowing the truth and even believing the truth is not enough. Our judgment will be based on what we did with what we have heard and what we have known and what we said we believed. Again, James 2, verse 19, could not be clearer. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. In other words, you believe that God's one, good for you. Even the demons believe that. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Faith without works is dead? And then it gets interesting here. Look at verse 14, back in Romans chapter 2. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. And we all know this to be true, that that people in pagan societies who, who have never heard God's word they don't even have a copy of the Bible, for example, they innately have a set of ethics that providentially, I think, reflect the basic tenets of God's word. They value things like justice and compassion and honesty and goodness, and they, they seek to uphold and live according to this value system. And, and, and I think in every culture, uh, there's... Uh, uh, an instinctive understanding that, that there are certain things that are wrong, like swearing or disrespecting your parents or killing another human being or, or committing adultery or stealing or lying or coveting. Oh, by the way, what do those sound like? The Ten Commandments, right? See, this inborn sense of right and wrong is the result of God writing His law in every heart which will serve as a witness against them on the judgment day so that they are doubly without excuse. We already know we're without excuse from chapter 1, verse 20, based on God's creation, and now we are doubly accountable because of our conscience. Notice verse 15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. So here we're introduced to this concept of the conscience. 
which literally means with knowledge. And so what Paul is saying is that we all know in our hearts and minds the difference between right and wrong. And God wired us in such a way that when we violate our conscience, we feel a sense of guilt. We have a guilty conscience. And so our conscience serves as an internal judge that either accuses us or absolves us, acquits us, depending on whether we're we're doing something right or we're doing something wrong. And it's really, you could look at our conscience as a a built-in warning system that's designed to, to go off whenever we choose to disobey God's law. And so when we repeatedly ignore the warnings of our conscience, we will become desensitized to it, and eventually we'll get to the place where we don't even feel it anymore. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, how the Spirit said in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. That's a vivid picture, right? Branding iron, you could touch that animal all you want right there and they're not going to feel it, right? Because it's just completely insensitive because it's been burned, it's been seared. And there's a lot of people running around this world who have just sinned so much and disregarded the, the guilt that they feel so often that they don't feel anything anymore. They're completely desensitized to the truth. Every so often I'll be in our, one of our cars and it seems to always happen on the way to church and I always think about it on the way to church and so I get in the car and I'm you know, scrambling to get up here and, and, and I haven't maybe buttoned my buttons on my cuffs here and so I'm driving down the road and I'm trying to get these things buttoned and, and, and I haven't put my seatbelt on yet because I was in a hurry, right? And so what do you hear? And I'm like, how long is this going to last? I can, I, can, I, can, I can overcome. I can endure this. It's going to go off. Just right, right now. Okay, now it's still going. What is the deal? One of our cars just goes forever. And it goes like halfway up to church. But it's interesting. Guess what? The longer it goes off and the, the longer I ignore it, the less it bothers me. And I just keep driving. And, and that's sometimes the way we live our lives. It's like the warning alarm is going off, ding, 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 or we see the light on the dashboard blinking at us saying, hey, your car needs service or something wrong, engine problem, and you're like, ah, that doesn't matter. And then you, you get in your car after three or four months and you, you, don't even rec- you don't even notice the lights on. Still blaring at you, but you just don't even recognize it. That's why Paul urged us throughout his letters to not violate our own conscience and to not cause others to do the same. We don't have time to look at that, but you can look at it later on in Romans. We're going we're gonna to dive into that in Romans 14. And he talks about a lot in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 10. But but what is Paul's point again here? Based on the fact that we all know what God's will is, either as a result of what we've been faithfully taught or what we inherently know, we all stand guilty before God. We never 
may have seen the, the, the two tablets that God engraved by his own finger and gave to Moses on Mount Sinai to the nation of Israel. But guess what? We don't have to because he engraved those things on our own hearts, every one of our hearts. Even those of us who live here in Montgomery, Texas, right? Where there's no Mount Sinai. He's written those things on our hearts. And that's why, let me just encourage all of us that when, whenever we share the gospel with someone, we need to remember that their conscience is on our side. You think about it, you're, you're going at it, you're talking to them, you're trying to share the gospel and, and show them the truth and, and just know that their conscience, according to this passage, is arguing against them and they're trying to suppress the truth, right, that you're sharing with them. And don't forget this either, that Jesus promised, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, that the Holy Spirit was sent, he sent the Holy Spirit specifically to convict people's minds and hearts and consciences about what three things? Sin, righteousness, and the fact that they're going to stand before God someday and face judgment. So the Spirit of God, you got their conscience working against them, you got the Holy Spirit working against them. I mean, that's three against one. You're in in a good position. And when you're sharing the gospel, let's, let's make sure to include man's sin. Talk about their sin. Talk about how they violated God's law. If you're familiar with um, the way of the master ministry, um, I'm blanking on the guy's name. Ray Comfort, thank you. He makes a big deal about explaining the law. People need to understand the law of God, the Ten Commandments, to see how they violated those things, that they're a sinner who is desperately in need of a Savior. And so make sure you talk about man's sin, talk about how they violated God's law, and, and that they will be judged, that they will experience God's wrath as a result of that. I mean, these are essential ingredients of the gospel message, and I know it sounds harsh, to talk about a person's sin and talk about God's wrath, but that's the gospel. And it's not only bad news, there's good news. But in order for the good news to be good, it's got to be bad first, right? But notice, I'm saying that because notice what Paul says here. Verse 16, on the day when according to my gospel... Remember in verse 16 of chapter 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He said, this is my gospel. He, again, he sees, this is a missionary support letter. Remember, he's, he's trying to get the churches in Rome to support him in his gospel effort to Spain. And he said, hey, this is the gospel that I preach. This is the gospel I believe. And he wants them to get behind it. And, and it's, 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 it's good news, the gospel. That's what the gospel means, good news in light of the bad news about God's judgment against sin. John Stott, who's one of my favorite commentators, he said this in his commentary at this point. He said, the good news of salvation shines forth brightly when it is seen against the dark background of divine judgment. I mean, you've got to paint an ugly scene for people. And so the gospel just pops out. He says, we cheapen the gospel if we represent it as a deliverance only from unhappiness, fear, 
guilt, and other felt needs instead of as a rescue from God's wrath. We would all do well to read R.C. Sproul's book, Save From What? Save from what? We talk about being safe. Save from what? It's not loneliness. It's not unhappiness. It's not guilt. It's not fear. It's being safe from God and his wrath. That's good news. And so God's judgment is based on truth. And then lastly, and just quickly here, in this last verse, verse 16, God's judgment is based on motives. God's judgment is based on motives. Notice this is on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Listen, we might be able to get away with some things and escape justice here on earth. Why? Because we don't get caught. Nobody saw it. Or there's a breakdown in the legal process. But listen, there will come a day when everything we have done that we shouldn't have done and all the things we have left undone that we should have done will be judged by God who, unlike all earthly judges, is omniscient and omnipresent. He knows everything and he is everywhere. So he doesn't miss a thing. He's got all the evidence against us, if you will. And and Paul describes it as the secrets of men or the motives that lie behind all of our actions. And as we mentioned uh, a few weeks ago, based on what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, precious stone passage, that only those things that are done for God's glory and by God's power will stand the test. Anything done in our own strength or for our own glory or to please or impress men rather than to please God, they'll be burned up. We'll receive no reward for those things. But again, listen to some verses about God's omniscience. 1 Samuel 16, 7, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks, what? At the heart. 1 Chronicles 28, 9, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Matthew chapter 6, verse 4, three times he says this uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you, whether it's giving, praying, or fasting. Don't do it publicly so everyone else sees. Do it so only God sees, and God will reward you accordingly. Luke 8, 17, nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, I read this already, Uh, A couple weeks ago, do not go on passing judgment before the time, Paul says, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. And then lastly, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to judge, remember what? The thoughts and intentions of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. 
And so according to Paul's gospel, he said, God will judge the secrets of men and catch this through Christ Jesus. God has appointed his son, Jesus Christ, to serve as the final judge. Paul said this in Acts 17, 31 on Mars Hill. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, capital M, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Who's the the only guy that got, got raised from the dead? Jesus, right? John 5, 22, for not even the father judges anyone. This is Jesus, but he has given all judgment to the son and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. I judge, Jesus says, and my judgment is just. Jesus is the just judge. Now, I don't know about you, whether or not you've ever had to go before a judge, but it can be very intimidating. Those of you that have had to go before a judge, uh, you know it's a very intimidating experience, unless you know the judge. And better, the judge knows you. And so I ask you this morning, do you know Jesus Christ? Or more importantly, does he know you? Do you guys have a personal relationship? See, you have no reason to fear God's judgment if the judge you will stand before someday is your Lord and Savior. And so the question is, will you face... Jesus as your judge, or will you face him as your advocate, your divine defense attorney? 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And by the way, Romans 3, 23 says, for all have sinned. We all need a divine defense attorney. And I think we could picture it like this. And just just hang with me just for a a few more minutes. Just imagine yourself sitting in a courtroom. You're on trial for all the sins, all the crimes that you've committed throughout your lifetime. The judge is God and the standard by which you're being judged is his law. Specifically, the Ten Commandments. And your eternal destiny is at stake in this trial. The prosecuting attorney steps forward to address the judge... He is none other than Satan himself, who the Bible refers to as the accuser of the brethren. Your Honor, he says, I am here today to present my case against you, against this person, that's you, who's on trial for breaking every one of your commands. And he has this mound of evidence against you. And he begins to pull one file after another from this large stack of legal boxes that he's brought with him and he just gleefully lists off all the bad things you've ever done. And he vividly describes in detail the many shameful ways that you have violated God's commandments. And and after what seems like an eternity, he says to God the judge, your honor, your own law says that the soul that sins must die. And this man is worthy, this woman is worthy of eternal judgment in hell. I rest my case. And he sits down feeling very self-satisfied. And so the judge looks at you 
with eyes that see through your soul and asks, how do you plead? Well, you know in your heart that the only way to answer is guilty as charged. And that the judge has every right to sentence you to hell for all eternity. But before you can say anything, the doors of the courtroom burst open and from the back in walks Jesus. The divine defense attorney and the devil shudders and he sinks down in his chair because he knows that Jesus has never lost a case, ever. And so Jesus calmly and confidently approaches the bench to intercede on your behalf and he doesn't use the appropriate expression, your honor, he says, hey dad, we both know this person is guilty of all of this, but all this evidence is inadmissible because I took the punishment for their sin when I died on the cross. And so once again, the judge ask you, well, how do you plead? And so you're emboldened by the presence of your defense attorney, and so your voice echoes through the courtroom, I plead the blood of Jesus. And so the judge responds very well then. All of your sins are forgiven. I declare that you are not guilty. You are free to go and sin no more case dismissed, and he pounds his gavel down. And at that moment, Satan hangs his head and quietly slinks out of the courtroom knowing that he has been defeated once again. Why is that an appropriate illustration of our salvation? Well, based on Romans 8, 33... Paul said, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And so if anyone sins, which we all have, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, book that we are really enjoying learning about, learning from, studying together. And Lord, thank you that we have nothing to fear when it comes to the judgment day as long as we know Jesus Christ, as long as he is our advocate, our defense attorney. But Lord, I know there are some here who, who are not yet convinced of their salvation. They've never truly repented and trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if they were to die today, they would stand before you and stand before Christ as a judge rather than an advocate. And so I pray that you would use the truth of your word combined with the Holy Spirit and their conscience to convict them, to grant them repentance, to grant them faith, or that today would be the day of their salvation and that they could have the hope of heaven. Lord, we pray this for your honor and the honor of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this 
Amen.